Good morning, my name's Rachel and I'll be uh, doing the second Bible reading for us. So you can open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 26 to 39. They sailed to a region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him, and they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Rachel. Uh, you could keep your Bible open. We'll be working through that passage. And if you're a note taker or you'd like to follow along, there's an outline as well, which you might find helpful. But as we begin, I'm going to pray. So please uh, pray with me. Gracious God, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your Son and in your Word. We rejoice in knowing that your Word will not return to you empty. It will accomplish what you please and prosper in what you send it to do. And may you be at work in us now through your Word by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are some things about reality that we don't think about much. Some things that are realities behind the scenes that are true, but which we don't give much thought to. For example, did you know that you, at the moment, are moving at the speed of 1,600 kilometers an hour? As you sit here in church, you are moving at 1,600 kilometers an hour. That's because that's how fast the world is spinning, and you are obviously sitting on top of the world, and so you are moving with it. It's quite an incredible thing, isn't it? It doesn't feel like it as we sit here. It doesn't feel like we've got to cling tightly to the pews, but we are moving at that speed. That is the reality behind the scenes. And in fact, things are mo the world is moving so fast that if it was to stop spinning for even a second, we would all be hurled forward at 1,600 kilometers an hour, a little bit like uh, what happens in a bus if the bus stops and you're not wearing a seatbelt, would be hurled forward. And in fact, not just us, but everything else around us not nailed down. It would also cause giant earthquakes and tsunamis and tidal waves. Have you ever thought about all of that? That's the reality behind the scenes that we don't often think about. 
another reality behind the scenes is the importance of bees. There are around 20,000 species of bees, and if they all dropped dead overnight, it would decimate our food production. That's because uh, bees are so vital in the production of around 70% of the crops we use for food. And so if bees were gone, we would lose apples, plums, nuts, vegetables. Though that's probably not so much of a loss. Uh, we'd also lose cherries, we'd lose honey, of course, but perhaps the killer, we would lose coffee. So most of the coffees we drink rely on bees for pollination. Doesn't that make you love bees more? But we don't think about bees much, do we? But they're so important. That is the reality behind the scenes. See, there are some things in life that we don't think about much, but that are foundational to the way the world works. And our passage today, Luke 8, gives us a glimpse of one of those realities behind the scenes. It gives us a glimpse of the spiritual war that's going on. The war between God and the devil. Have you ever thought about that much? I suspect that it's something we don't actually think about much. We live in a society that tells us that you'd, you'd have to be an idiot to believe in Satan and in the spiritual realm. And it's easy to get sucked in with that. And what that means is we don't think about it much. But just because we don't think about it much doesn't mean that it's not true. And Luke 8, along with the whole Bible actually, makes very clear Satan and his demons do exist and they're locked in a war with God. But you might be thinking, well, so what? Who cares? Why does that matter to me? We know for the other realities behind the scenes why they matter. If the world stopped spinning, we'd all die. If bees stopped existing, we'd all starve. But what about this reality? Why should it matter to us? Well, it's because of what this war is for. At its heart, it's a war for who is king of the universe, for who has control of the universe, of the world, and of us. In one sense, it is a war for me and for you. Satan is fighting for ownership and control of you. And if he gets it, he will destroy you. God as king is a gracious and a loving king. But if Satan were king, he would devour and destroy us like a lion. And so the outcome of this spiritual war is actually vital for your well-being and for your future well-being. And Luke 8 gives us then a glimpse into the reality of that spiritual war. But what it makes clear is that while there is a war going on, it's a completely and utterly one-sided war. Now here's a photo of Levi, my two-year-old son. So he's, he was quite chuffed to get to pose for a photo. He's showing you his uh, new skill of giving thumbs up there. But imagine if Levi were to get into a fight with Mike Tyson. If Levi were to fight Mike Tyson, that would be a completely and utterly one-sided fight. As much as he takes after me and so as strong and as tough as he is, he would lose, and he would lose easily. In a sense, it's over before it's begun. And what Luke 8 shows us is that the spiritual war that's going on is even more one-sided than a fight between Levi and Mike Tyson. There's a spiritual war going on and Jesus is winning easily. 
And we see that right from the start. That passage starts as Jesus arrives and he steps off the boat. He's in the region of the Gerasenes, just across the lake from Galilee, and he's just calmed the storm. And as he steps off the boat, he's confronted by this demon-possessed man, verse 27. Now, this poor bloke's been caught up in the spiritual war, and he's been doing things tough at the hands of the demon. He's been naked and homeless, living in a cemetery, away from family and friends, tormented out of his mind. He's likely emaciated and filthy, probably hasn't been bathing much. This guy's in a bad way at the hands of this powerful demon. And this poor, wretched, demon-possessed man meets Jesus, the one who can heal the sick, who can raise the dead, who can calm the seas with just a word. And so when they meet, we might expect there to be sparks. It's a bit like a clash of the titans, the two powerful forces colliding. Good versus evil, son of God meets depraved demon. So we might expect that there are sparks, a big, tense battle, but did you see what happens when they meet? There's no fighting, no sparks, no bitter battle. Instead, the demon falls on his knees and grovels before Jesus. Have a look at verse 28. When the demon saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. Is that what you expected? This powerful demon, capable of destroying this poor guy's life, falls on his knees and begs. Why does he do that? Well, it's because he's recognized who he's up against, the son of the most high God, and he knows he's way out of his league. It's a bit like this. Imagine if you're down at the local football ground to watch the Box Hill Under-10s football club. They've just been in the rooms getting a pump up by the coach and so they're frothing at the mouth. They come charging out, ready to run through walls. And as they come out onto the field, they look and see their opponent for the day is the Geelong Football Club. Box Hill under 10s versus reigning AFL premiers. The battle's over before it's begun. They're way, way, way out of their league. And it's a little bit like that with the demon. He looks at who his opponent is And he realizes he's way out of his league. And so he simply falls on his knees before Jesus and begs. Did you notice how Jesus responds? He asks the man his name. But did you see who replies? Not the man, but the demon, which shows just how in control the demon actually is. And the demon's answer actually makes this thing more incredible if that's possible. Have a look at verse 30. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. The demon's name is Legion, which was a militaristic term for a regiment of 6,000 men. Now, that might mean that there are actually 6,000 demons in in the man, or it might just mean that this is an extremely large number. But either way, the point is that this is not a fair fight. This is many onto one. And we all know that in a fight, numbers help. Imagine if I looked at that fight earlier and I said, I want to help Levi out. I'm going to go and fight Mike Tyson. Now, if I was to do that by myself, I would lose as well. But if all of you were to help me, we were all to gang up on Mike Tyson, we could win. Even though the one is much stronger than each of us individually, us together 
can outnumber and beat him. We know that in fights, numbers help. The more of you there are, the easier it is to win. But even though the demons outnumber Jesus 6,000 to 1, still the 6,000 are so fearful of the 1. Still the 6,000 are so much weaker than the 1. See, there's a spiritual war going on and Jesus is winning easily. And so this legion of demons then comes up, it continues to beg Jesus, and they come up with a, a creative plan. They beg him, don't send me into the abyss, don't send us into the abyss, which was the place of torment and judgment for demons. But instead they've got this creative solution. Have a look at verse 32. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. They want Jesus to send them into the pigs. Now, as you might know, pigs were unclean animals in Jewish culture, but these events are happening in the region of the Decapolis, which was a mainly Gentile place, hence the, the pigs, they were, Gentiles were okay with pigs, and the demons want to go into the pigs. But notice, even for that, they still need permission, because Jesus is the one in charge of the situation here. Now, Jesus does allow them to go into the pigs, but not out of kindness, it's actually out of judgment. Did you see that? Have a look at verse 33. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Now, in Jewish theology, the sea and big bodies of water, was, they were a place of chaos and of mayhem, of death and of judgment. And so I think the fact that the pigs run off the cliff and into the lake is showing us the demons here are conquered, not converted. Now, some people do here object to this on ethical grounds. They say, well, couldn't Jesus have dealt with the demons without killing off the pigs? Couldn't he have done it without crippling financially this poor herdsman that's just kind of standing nearby? But I think to wonder that is to miss the point spectacularly. Now, it's true that Jesus created the pigs, and so he has a right to do whatever he wants with them. It's true that it's far better for a herd of pigs to die than for 6,000 demons to be around. So all of that is true. But the key to the story is that it's a tale of spectacular deliverance from the demonic. And I think we miss that if we obsess over the pigs. See, what we should be focusing on is the glimpse that this gives us of the reality behind the scenes. There's a spiritual war going on, and Jesus is winning easily. What a, what a wonderful deliverance this is. What a powerful saviour. But did you realise that this man's story is also our story? That might sound like a bit of a funny thing to say. We're not running around naked. We're not breaking chains and living in a cemetery. But though we might not always show it on the outside, if we look at ourselves through the lens of God's holiness, we see that we too are naked and imprisoned by the power of sin. We too were held tight in Satan's deathly grasp in need of rescue. And on the cross, Jesus did for us what he did here for the demoniac. He silenced the accusations of the devil and he satisfied the demands of justice. See, our sin debt was erased and we were set free. We who were once imprisoned and tortured were given back our lives because on the cross, the devil was disarmed 
and defeated. And praise God, that is what Jesus offers. But only for those who trust in Jesus. Because that is the only way to be free of Satan and his powers. So the man, he couldn't do anything. He couldn't free himself. And that is what we are like spiritually aside from Jesus. Apart from Jesus, we are still stuck in Satan's arms with no way to free ourselves. And so then, if it's only up to Jesus, the question has to be then, how will we respond to Jesus? And in the remainder of the passage, we see the two possible responses. That of the townspeople and that of the demoniac, which is just a term for the man who is demon-possessed. And they're really the only two responses we can have to the reality of this spiritual war. The first response is the townspeople. They see what Jesus has done and they try and push him away. In verse 34, the people who saw all this happen go and tell the rest of the town and the rest of the town comes to see it for themselves and when they arrive, they can't believe what they've seen. Have a look at verse 35. When the townspeople came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demon had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They arrive and they see this demon-possessed man sitting there calmly, cured of his demons. And now we do need to remember this isn't a big city like Melbourne. This is a small local town. It's the kind of town where everyone, everyone knows each other, where everyone knows each other's business. And so they almost certainly would have known this man. Maybe they went to school with him. Maybe they were friends with him. Maybe they used to work with him or maybe one of their relatives was married to one of his relatives. And so they all knew he was the local nut, demon-possessed and living in the cemetery with no clothes on. But as they arrive then, they see this man they all know sitting there calmly and in his right mind. What would you do if you're in that situation? Praise God? Celebrate along with the man? Ask Jesus to stick around to deal with other problems he might have? Well, they don't do any of that. Instead, they ask Jesus to leave. Have a look at verse 37. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got in the boat and left. So instead of celebrating the deliverance of this man, they're scared. In fact, the word there used has the, in the Greek has the sense of mega fear. They're almost overcome with fear. Their fear has swapped from the demon-possessed man to Jesus. They're afraid of Jesus because of his great power. And rather than find security in that power, they instead ask him to leave. It's quite an incredible thing to think about, isn't it? These people ask the Son of God to leave. They told the Son of God he's not welcome in their town. And this is exactly, though, what happens so often today. So many people feel threatened by Jesus. They don't like the way he exposes their sin. They're afraid of his authority and his power. And so they'll do everything they can to get Jesus to leave. They'll enact laws. They'll write books. They'll ridicule his followers. They'll slander his precious name. See, ultimately, they have an extremely simple goal. They want to push Jesus away. Don't let this be you. Because for anyone who does this, they're left in slavery to sin and to Satan. 
But there's a second kind of response. And that's the response we should be. See, others recognize that Jesus is the one who can set them free. And so they respond to his power by running towards him. They submit to his authority and walk with him the rest of their lives. That's what the demoniac does. Did you see what he wants? Have a look at verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with Jesus. So he's experienced the authority and the power of Jesus and the wonderful rescue and healing that that brings. And so naturally, he wants to go with Jesus. But did you see how Jesus responds? Continue in verse 38. But Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Jesus says to him, go and tell everyone what Jesus has done for you, what God has done for you. And imagine that for a testimony. Well, I used to run around naked, snapping chains with my bare hands, sleeping in cemeteries. I was possessed by 6,000 demons. But then I met the Son of God and he, the demons fell and begged him like a dog and he cast them out into a herd of pigs. The pigs ran off the cliff and they drowned and now here I am. Imagine hearing someone share that. Imagine if someone got up and gave their testimony at church and that was it. And you could just imagine how it was received. Maybe this guy had a wife and he goes and knocks on the door and she opens the door and she can't believe her eyes at the change that's happened in him. Or maybe he bumps into an old friend from school down at the supermarket and, and this friend is scared of him and tries to run away. But he tells them, I've changed. Jesus healed me. So he goes and he tells of what God has done for him. And it is an amazing testimony. But you know what? If you have put your trust in Jesus, then your testimony is just as exciting as his is. Maybe you feel like compared to his, your testimony is boring. That's a little bit what I feel sometimes. I grew up in a Christian household. I can't remember a day when I didn't accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. There were ups and downs, of course, but no big falling away period. And it can be easy to feel like my testimony compared to someone else's is boring. Have you ever felt like that? Well, when we do, that's why it's so important to remember the reality behind the scenes, that there is a spiritual war going on. And the spiritual war is a fight for our souls. And every single testimony is the story of Jesus' victory. The story of how he plundered you from Satan's kingdom. Isn't that encouraging to think about? And that's why every testimony is so exciting. Praise God for his stories of plunder and salvation. And so if we've encountered Jesus like this, if we've seen God's goodness at work in us through his spirit, then we have good news to bring to the world. See, Jesus told the demoniac to go and tell the world of what God had done for him. And Jesus also tells us to go into the world and tell of what God has done for us. Now, one interesting thing here in Jesus' instructions is that he tells the man to go back home. The mission of God begins in our homes as we pass on to those closest to us how much God has done for us. How much God has done for us by setting us free, by covering our shame, by renewing our minds, and by giving us new lives to live. Now, of course, God's mission obviously doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop in our homes. 
but it does begin there. It starts in our homes and our families as we share with them what God has done for us, plundering us out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of life. And as we offer them, this is what God can do for them as well. But of course, the challenging part of that is is knowing, well, how do we do that though? How do we go about telling of what God has done for us? And so what I want to suggest for you is one possible model. It's not the only model. There's plenty of other models out there that you could do, but this is one you might find helpful when you think, how do I go and tell of what God has done for me? And the model is this, pray, love, tell. Pray, love, tell. The first step is to pray. It always has to be, doesn't it? It has to start with us coming before God on our knees and asking him for help. Because we can do nothing by our own strength. It's only by the strength of God that we can do anything. In the lead up to our Food for Thought program that we run as a church both last year and this year, my growth group spent a lot of time praying. We made a concrete list, one name each, of those we want to aim to invite along. And then we spent a lot of time praying about that. It was actually amazing to see how God in his kindness, when we prayed about it, how he answered those prayers. So many from that list we made that we invited along said yes and came along to Food for Thought. It was great to see. So the first step to being able to tell of what God has done is to pray, to ask God for help. And so let me ask you this. Are you praying for your non-Christian family and friends? Are you praying that you might be able to share what God has done for you with them? When was the last time you prayed and asked God for that? Last week? Last month? Last year? Or maybe you can't even remember when the last time you prayed about that was. It's worth reflecting because our prayer life shows where our heart lies. Follow your prayers and you'll find your heart. So if we want our family and our friends to be saved, then we have to begin by asking God for help. We have to pray. The second step is to love them, to be there for them. Because if we're not invested in them, if we're not loving them, then our words lose a lot of punch. But conversely, if we are invested in their lives, if we're there for them when times are tough, then when we share of what God has done, it does pack an extra punch. I was chatting to one one young lady at church recently, and she's great at inviting her non-Christian family and friends and, and work colleagues along to things. And I said to her, I asked her, what's your tip? How do you do it so well? Do you know what she said? She said, I don't do anything special. I'm just friends with them. I'm just invested in their lives. And then she lets them know she's a Christian and actually asks them. And I found that so encouraging. We don't need to be an an incredible evangelist. We don't need to have particular skills or specialties. All we need to do is love our friends, to be there for them, to be invested in their lives and then to be intentional about sharing our faith, which is the final step we tell. We look for chances to share our faith, to share of what God has done for us and can, and can do for them. And if that comes from a place of love on the foundation of prayer, then you never know what God could do. I wonder, when was the last time you told someone what God has done for you? For many of us, I suspect it feels overwhelming 
to try and share the whole gospel with someone might feel like a bit of a spiritual Mount Everest, a mountain that's too big to climb. And so why not then start small? This week, why not share with someone what you did over the weekend? Uh, That's what I used to do when I was a school teacher. You could start by asking them, what did you do on the weekend? They'll tell you, and then uh, nine out of 10 people have enough social EQ to then ask you back, well, what did you do over the weekend? And then you can tell them you went to church. And if you're feeling particularly adventurous, you could tell them about the sermon today, how it's all about demons. But why not try that? Why not just start by telling them you go to church? And it's a small way to start introducing into the relationship and into the conversation that you're a Christian and that you go to church. It's a small yet achievable way of beginning to open doors to tell of what God has done for us. And doing that, telling of what God has done, has to be the top priority for us. Because the underlying reality of this world is that there's a spiritual war going on and it affects every single one of us, whether we know it or not. It is, if it's true, it is true for all of us. But the great news is that in that spiritual war, Jesus is winning easily. So go and share of that. Go and tell how much God has done for us in the hope that they might hear, repent, and be saved. May that always be our heart's deepest desires. In fact, I'm gonna pray and ask God that it would be. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Luke 8. Thank you that it gives us a glimpse into the reality behind the scenes. It shows us there is a spiritual war going on. Would you help us to see the world rightly in light of that? Help us to see that Satan and his army is a real thing a dangerous thing and a powerful thing. But would you give us incredible comfort and uh, comfort to know that uh, Jesus is winning so easily that here, as we see, all Satan can do is fall and beg that there's nothing Satan can do to defeat you and to defeat Christ. We thank you that we see that ultimate victory on the cross where sin and Satan was defeated. We thank you for Jesus laying down his life for us. We thank you that that is what you have done for us through your son. May you fill our hearts with a love, a deep love for others, a burning passion to see them hear that gospel and to repent and be saved. Help us to be prayerful in how we do that. Help us to love our friends and family enough to do that and help us to be clear and bold in how we tell them of what you have done. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.